and we'll see if that works for the night. My phone's on silent. Is yours? Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Reminds us of the exhortation of the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, who has a lot to say about the world. In addressing the young men, the Apostle John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can love one or the other is what that means. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. A very challenging and sobering thought and makes us wonder, what in the world does he mean by the world? Because for God so loved the world, same writer, John, that he gave his only begotten son. But here we are not to love the world. Well, hopefully you understand the world, as John uses it there, refers to a system of deception that is so pervasive, it's so encompassing in all of the human race that it is called the cosmos, the world. Almost as though the air you breathe is saturated with deception from the prince of the power of the air. And it's not physical and metaphysical that way, but it is deceptive, a deceptive environment that we're in. And the only way we can avoid deception is to keep our eyes fixed on our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and thereby overcome Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure we're having fellowship with God according to His character on the basis of His righteousness. If we walk in the light as God the Father Himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. That's we have fellowship with God and He with us. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. That is the worthy walk that the believer is called to live in, to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told elsewhere by the Apostle Paul, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It says, but I say, in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit. That's walk in the power supplied by the Holy Spirit of God who lives in you. And if you will, you will not in that moment be able to fulfill the lust of the flesh. And you could say, well, but sometimes we do. And that's, that's an indication that in those moments you're not walking in dependence on the power supplied by the Holy Spirit. And that is defilement of sin. And what do we do about it? Well, Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. And in a sense, all of your sins are already forgiven forever and ever, past, present, and future. And that's your relationship with God. But in terms of the operational spiritual life and your walk with Him in fellowship, the sins we commit break fellowship with God. And He will clean us right up if we name them to Him. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And by that, what John's talking about in First John is to restore us to fellowship with him. It's all by his grace. But he is looking for a relationship with you which requires your communication to him. And that requires some self-assessment. I'll give you a moment for silent prayer, and then we'll open in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that as we've sung your praises tonight and sung the praises of your Son 
in, in your son's name, we come to you to express our gratitude that we are overcomers in Christ because we have him. We have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we, by that position in Christ, are overcomers with him because he has been victorious. And we thank you for the victory that is ours to claim moment by moment as we abide in him, as we walk by your spirit, as we live our lives with that great ambition, Paul tells us, to be pleasing to him. Father, our heart's desire, as we love you and your son by keeping what you've commanded us, as we live our lives in the power that you've supplied. Father, glorify yourself tonight as we consider this wonderful doctrine of resurrection. Let it hit us where it needs to. Let it reside in us. Let us live our lives from this perspective you've provided. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to open tonight with an image for you, just a thought experiment. Um, Just a few words from a document that's very famous and sacred to us. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political uh, bonds, bands, which have connected them with with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. That's some pretty solid writing right there. That's uh, Thomas Jefferson with some help from his little help from his friends in 1776 and in late June, establishing what is really the spirit of our nation's founding in this separation from England, the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson goes on to write, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. I don't know what's in Jefferson's head. I don't know what his life is like. I don't know what it would have been like to play cards with him or sit and talk with him. I know what he wrote. I know what that has meant to me, what he wrote. I know that what that has meant to my parents and my grandparents, my pastor, and people that I've grown up around for my life. I know what these words, how they've hit them. I also know that today we're being told by people that are put forward as the, the knowledgeable um, of our, among us, we're being told that these words are written in order to establish dominance of people of light skin over the rest of the people of the world. That those words that I just read were intended to force dark-skinned people under the the thumb of light-skinned people. And that's why those words were written. 
And I just want to say that when, when I read these, it doesn't even enter my thinking at all about the different melanin content in people's skin or different continents people live on or, or economics. I don't think about those things at all. Jefferson's got me thinking about my creator. And if I do that, then I've, I've got to go to what God says about us, that we're from one blood, we're one people, one race of humans. And that he's talking about human beings, and it's very metaphysical and anthropological. And if I ask, what do you do with that text about the question of people of different skin colors? If I let the text tell me what it tells me, and then I ask the question about skin color, I end up with what I grew up believing. That that isn't the issue. It, it, we're, made, we're human beings. What matters is our character. What matters is uh, the integrity of the individual. What matters is the person that you choose to be. And, and, and the society works by individuals holding themselves to the standard they should. And then as those standards are transgressed, eventually uh, the group has to, has to say, no, it's, that's the wrong way. And that's law enforcement and, and protection of individual liberty and, and the things that built the civilization uh, in terms of principle. What I'm trying to tell you is that the 1619 Project, which I'm told now has its own like, TV show on one of these pay, uh, premium services, you can, you can watch how the, and a lot of the different media that's out there today, how they'll take these documents and say, we're going to reinterpret these from a perspective completely foreign to what they're doing as, they, as these Englishmen break with England. It's Englishmen talking about other Englishmen. And what is the nature? We're not Englishmen anymore. We're Americans. And that, that has nothing to do with the kind of sensitivities people are bringing forth today. But they're making money doing it. And I think that you have to follow the money um, a lot of times. And I, I do. I have a very um, c- cynical perspective about racial huckstering today. Why am I inf- introducing this Ill- image? Just to get you upset. In Jesus' day, people in charge of the temple, priesthood, didn't believe in the resurrection. They had what we count as 39 books. Their count was different, but it's the same text. They had the Old Testament text. They, had all, they, they knew Hebrew. They read it in Hebrew. They were able to conclude from reading that text that there's no resurrection, there's no supernatural, there's no spiritual. There's just the physical, it seems, as the Sadducees denied even that there was a spirit. How do they claim Leviticus as their handbook and say we're the priests running the temple and deny the resurrection of the dead? Well, it's similar to the way you can read those words of Jefferson and say this is about racism. It has nothing to do with racism. In other words, you can misinterpret texts all day. And what we're learning to do in this study by starting with the New Testament and what it says about the resurrection as taught in the Old Testament, we're learning that there's a right way to read the Old Testament, that Jesus read it the right way, and Paul read it the right way, and Peter did as well. And tonight, we have some pretty powerful testimony that if you believe the New Testament, then you have to believe that the Old Testament taught the resurrection of the Messiah. If you believe the New Testament, then you need to believe that the Old Testament in its original intent, taught the resurrection of the Messiah. And I'll show you how that goes to the original intent of the writer. 
See, I don't think Jefferson was a great guy. I don't know much about him, but the little bit I know about him, there were great qualities. He had certainly a, a measure of genius, and I wouldn't take anything away from that. But I wouldn't go to Bible class with him. I mean, I wouldn't listen to his Bible class. And um, his metaphysics are off, and his theology is way off. And, um, and, and then let's talk about the morality and certain practices and certain things we know from history. Yeah, I, I don't have any brief for him, but the words that he said there, those are solid things. And they're not being um, used correctly because of misinterpretation. How do you get there? How do you get a misinterpretation of a text so far from what the author intends to be something insane like the light-skinned people from northern Europe or, or, or whatever, however that migration happened after the, the flood of Noah and we all got off the same boat in Mount Ararat? How did that end up being um, light-skinned people and dominance over dark-skinned people? And that's what Jefferson's writing about. You have to suspend disbelief, and you basically have to suspend any principles of reading or hermeneutics to come up with that. And you say, well, we know they had slaves or some other thing, and uh, the problem is you're misinterpreting the text because you have an agenda to do so. Well, I think today, as we've talked about, um, it's very popular to read the Old Testament and say, you're really begging the question, you're really wishful thinking if you want to say that they're talking about resurrection in the Old Testament. And what we're saying is you've completely missed the thrust of the Old Testament. So we've looked. And why are we doing this? We're in the little apocalypse of Isaiah 26. And we have this difficult verse, 2619, which says, They'll live who will live. Your dead ones will live. Their corpses will rise. Wake up and cry out, you who lie in the dust. For dew of morning light will be your dew. And earth to the departed spirits will give birth. And it literally taken, that has to be a resurrection of the dead. And as we said, the scholarship out there says this is the one verse in the Old Testament that says there's a resurrection of the dead. And not all scholars think that way, but enough of them, enough Old Testament guild scholars think this way that it's worth taking some time and saying, you've misread the Old Testament if that's what you think. And you're arrogant to think you read it better than Paul or Peter or Matthew, as Matthew writes what Jesus said, as we've seen. Here's where we've come so far. We rebuked the Sadducees. I saw Jesus going after the Sadducees in Matthew 22 and Luke 20 who deny the resurrection. And he said, you don't understand that God is the God of the living and he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they have to be, in Moses' day, they have to be resurrected at some point for God to be the God of the living and to be the God of Abraham. Abraham's dead in Moses' day, but he's the God of Abraham. So he has to be resurrected or God is not the God of the living. And that's the rationale Jesus brings, and it blows our minds about the way you're supposed to understand the things that God is saying as you read it in the Old Testament. Jesus saves us, helps us in many ways, right? He helps us read the scriptures. He rebukes the disciples in Luke 24, as we've seen, and uh, you have the greatest uh, Bible lesson on the Old Testament ever in Luke 24, 46. And then we saw in Paul the two things that Paul says in his preaching in Acts. The one is that the Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures had to be resurrected. The Messiah had to be resurrected. And the second is that we expect because of our relationship with the Messiah, the resurrection of believers. And Paul hung the doctrine of our future resurrection and promise on the proof that Jesus had been resurrected. And the one who said he would do that for us has already raised Christ. And we're in Christ. So if Jesus is raised, and then, then whatever the Father said he would do for us in resurrection, we can assume that's true because God's already done it once. He's already demonstrated it. 
And so the two things, I mean, that's one of the ways Paul is showing you the, the, the resurrection. Two things, that there has to be the Messiah, the Israel's elect anointed one, the, the, we call it Christos in the New Testament. That's Mashiach in the Old Testament. The anointed one of God, the Christ, has to be resurrected according to the Scriptures. And since he has been resurrected and promised to raise us, we will be resurrected as well. And last time we devoted the entire um, message to 1 Corinthians 15, and we talked about knuckleheads, the knucklehead thing. I learned recently, uh, unfortunately, that the, that the Harley-Davidson motorcycle I put on the screen was a shovelhead. It wasn't a knucklehead, and that's too bad. But I do believe I have a high premium for accuracy. And so when I make these corrections, understand um, I'm trying to be uh, consistent. But, uh, but the Corinthians are knuckleheads. But 1 Corinthians 15 is a beautiful thing. There, there's teaching in that church that there is no resurrection of the dead. And Paul says, you fools, how can Christ be raised if no one's raised from the dead? And if Christ isn't raised, then we're hopeless. We're still in our sins. We don't have salvation. And so, so the Corinthians aren't known for their reasoning right? The Corinthian church and first Corinthians. And so why I called them knuckleheads is because um, I think 30s Harley Davidson motorcycles are beautiful, but some of them had a motor called a knucklehead motor. And they, so they're knucklehead Harleys. And so it's beautiful, but it's a knucklehead. And that's what first Corinthians 15 is. It's a correction of a false teaching, but it's a beautiful chapter of scripture. Anyway, moving on. Let's hear what Peter says about the resurrection as prophesied. And Peter's going to get into more Old Testament reasoning and proof texting, if you will. He's going to demonstrate from the Old Testament and say things that if you take Peter and what he says in Acts chapter 2 about the Old Testament, you're going to have to say the Old Testament writers are thinking of resurrection. Acts 2, 24-32 is kind of the target, the Old Testament expectation of resurrection. And so I want to do Peter's speech in Acts 2, and really that's verses 14-36 through 36 tonight. I hate when that happens. In verse 14 through 21, you have Peter's explanation, so let's set up the story. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit shows up as promised 10 days uh, after Jesus' ascension, and uh, that's the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. He is uh, present and imbues the disciples with power just as Jesus had told them in Acts 1.8 that he told them to remain in Jerusalem. And he said, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. And then he ascended. That's the last words of Jesus before his ascension uh, in Acts as the book of Acts gets rolling. So they were there 10 days later and it happens. They're in the upper room, probably of John Mark's house, where Jesus taught the upper room discourse, I think. And they receive this manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit with tongues of fire over their heads. And they're able to speak in foreign tongues or languages. And language and tongue are interchangeable words in English and in Greek as well. And so they're speaking foreign languages and glorifying God. And 
they're in the streets, and there's this mighty rushing wind, and the people are coming out to see what's the commotion, and they're hearing God praised, and there's a festival. It's, the day of, it's a 50-day festival, Pentecost, and so there are people from all over the diaspora, all over the Mediterranean world with all their different Gentile languages, and they're hearing God's praises from Jews speaking Gentile languages. And so that's what's happening, and the people in the street are uh, confused, and they're saying in verse 13, uh, they're full of sweet wine. These guys are out here drunk, uh, speaking what sounds like to us like Babel. The um, word barbarian is an interesting word. You know that word barbarian? It's, um, it's actually the Greeks saying people that don't speak Greek sound like ba 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 to us. It's making, it's an onomatopoeia. It's making fun of people that aren't erudite speaking, you know, beautiful Greek. That's the idea. And so that's why sometimes they're called, bar, you know, the Gentiles are barbarians and the Greeks. It's Greeks and not non-Greeks among the Gentiles. Um, so the foreign languages sounds, it doesn't sound, understand, it doesn't sound like um, gibberish. It sounds like nonsense because it's foreign languages. It's Genesis 11, but it's kind of in reverse because people that's, that are from these different places are hearing God praise in their language. So that's the context. And, and so there's this accusation. The Holy Spirit is revealing that he is present in a way that he hasn't been present before. This is a new work. This is our birthday. It's the beginning of the church age. And so Peter gets to be the one by God's grace, who explains to the crowds and then through Luke's pen to us what is happening. These men are not drunk, he says. They are filled with the Spirit, as Joel chapter 2 predicts. These are not drunk. And that's what he does in 14 through 21 with an extended quote of Joel 2. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice, declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. So 9 a.m.-ish. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour out Forth of my spirit, they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and the signs of the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Sun, sun, the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, for the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when Peter quotes Luke 2, people have tended to say, this tells us, or he quotes Joel 2, sorry, when he quotes Joel 2, People have said, well, if that's what Joel 2 is actually talking about, and none of those physical signs in the heavens happened, and they didn't, then we must conclude that the, the big language of, um, of astronomical phenomena in the prophets when it talks about the day of the Lord and the coming cataclysm, we can't take that literally because none of that stuff happened. You have to be figurative and just say that they're using big language. And that's one of the great theories that are out there in terms of interpreting the Old Testament prophets. We don't adopt that theory. We think that what Peter's saying is the Holy Spirit is here as he will be poured out on all flesh 
in the time that, jo- that Joel's talking about in the coming kingdom when Jesus is ruling on earth and the new covenant is in its full expression and everyone it does benefit this way, which we've already heard Jesus say, it's not for you to know when, I'm co- when the kingdom is coming. It's not here now. But he's saying it's the Holy Spirit and the end. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the, the, the long discussion is saying we are still, I think he's still anticipating what Joel prophesies. In other words, the second advent of Christ and the coming kingdom will be characterized by the fulfillment of God's promise of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. You could say that what, what they have is a foretaste of this because everyone who believes in Christ, Jew and Gentile, beginning on the day of Pentecost, receives the Holy Spirit. Now, no Gentiles did here. They're using Gentile languages, but that's a prediction too because this is about to go to the Mediterranean world and even to us. It's about to go to the whole Gentile world and they're going to receive the Holy Spirit promised to the house of Judah and the house of Israel in Jeremiah 31. So it's a difficult verse when he says this is that which Joel prophesied, but that which Joel prophesied is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the salvation of all who call on the name of the Lord. And I believe that that's what we have as a fulfillment here. In other words, I won't change the way Joel reads, if you read Joel 2, which is about the, the millennial kingdom. I won't change that to mean now we're in it. And, and all, the, all the astronomical things haven't happened. Um, anyway, that's an exegetical problem. But, but Peter says this is that. In verses 22 through 23... Peter uh, establishes that Jesus of Nazareth actually died. And the way he does it, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. You saw him heal the sick. You saw him cast out demons. You saw him raise the dead. You know these things. There was even a plot in Jerusalem to kill Lazarus because they knew Lazarus had been raised from the dead in John 11. This one, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. See, God was arranging this. It was God's plan, which he knew beforehand. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Listen to that language. You, men of Israel, nailed him. Now, they didn't physically nail him to the cross, right? But they did nail him to the cross. Peter says so. How did they nail him to the cross? Well, Judas gave him to the temple guards. Temple guards did their, you know, took him in for the, for the kangaroo court trials. They got him finally handed over to Pontius Pilate, and some Roman did this. Some Romans eventually nailed him to the cross in, a, in an effort to quell the rebellion that would rise, the riot, and appease the Jews, Pilate says, I wash my hands of him. But the Romans do whatever you... And then, and then they told the Romans. But they did it, uh, Paul said, or Peter says, you nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And so we've got to understand that the reason he mentions the death of Jesus in part is because he's going to emphasize the resurrection of Jesus in his preaching. That this is the work, what you're seeing on the street in Jerusalem, of the manifestations of God, miraculously equipping people with this sign miracle gift of speaking foreign languages to praise God in all these different languages. What you're seeing is the result of the resurrection of Christ. In verses 24 through 28, 
You killed him in 22 through 23, but he rose from the dead in 24 through 28, according to the scriptures. And this is where it gets very interesting for our interpretive method for how we read the Old Testament. In other words, watch closely. I'm going to say Peter does not change the way to read the Old Testament because he's putting a new spin on it. Peter's saying the right way to read David and what David intended is what I'm saying. And you can't get away from it in chapter uh, 2 of Acts. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then he quotes Psalm 16, which we're going to spend a little bit of time on in this study. Not tonight. We won't spend a lot of time tonight, but we'll work through Psalm 16. For David says of him, Peter says, David says of him. Luke wrote down that Peter said that David said of Jesus. That's what's going on here. I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. If you say this is about Jesus, that he saw God, the Father, if you will, always in his face, like he's always with me. This is exactly what we understand of the life of Jesus. There was never a moment in his life that he wasn't walking in fellowship with God. He never stepped out of line. David did. Was David always having God in his presence at all times? Was he always thinking of God? See, we could say, well, when we read Psalm 16, he's just using summary language. You know, God, I'm always walking with God. But when you think of it as, did, did he always? The only one who did that is Jesus. And so anyway, just a, a little bit of a foretaste of what Peter's going to do with this. I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Psalm 16, therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Now, why is he glad? Why is the David writing, speaking, and I argue from the passage of Messiah, why is Messiah glad? Because he's got something to, to keep him busy? Because he's, he heard good news that you know, there was a party he was invited to because um, there was a trip coming up and that was something to look forward to. Why was he glad? Because the Lord was always in his presence. There's a cause effect here in a relationship with God. What's the cause for your joy? Well, it, it, in prosperity, it's hard for us to be disciplined about this. It's much easier in chains. It's much easier in a Joseph in prison sort of situation to say, I can rejoice in the Lord even in my suffering. It's much easier to do that in some ways than it is to, uh, to, to rejoice in him and not in the pleasant circumstances of your prosperity. But, but David says that the one he's speaking of says, therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. All right, so this is the controversial verse. Psalm 16 is saying there uh, in, about, in about verse 9 that the Messiah, or da whoever David's speaking of in the first person, perhaps himself, that he won't rot in Sheol. Or he, actually, that he won't leave his soul in Sheol. It, it will, it's, it'll say in Hebrew, and then, or allow his holy one to rot. 
And those are not the same thing, by the way. Sheol, some people will say, is the grave. It is not the grave. Your body goes to the grave. You go to Sheol back then. Back then, that's what happened. That's how there was a division of the body and the immaterial, the spirit, soul, and the, and the body. There would be a division. And the body goes into the grave. The, you go to Sheol or Hades here. And um, that's, a, that's a Sadducean interpretation, I contend, to say that, well, Sheol just means the grave or Hades just means the grave. That's like pretending like there's no immaterial you that God's going to deal with. But anyway, that's, that's the metaphysics of it. Anyway, he says, you will not undergo, you will not, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And then verse 26, you've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And so, oh, that's verse 28. If, if God is not allowing his, leaving his soul in the place of the dead, the dead, the souls of the dead, Hades. If he's not allowing his body to rot, but he's making him known, making known to him the ways of life, you make me full of gladness in your presence, which is what he had before. I'm glad in your presence all the time. Then it seems like there is life, then death, but death is interrupted, and then life again. It's pretty straightforward. And what, what Peter's going to say is David means the Messiah and he means the resurrection. If you can read, then you need to know this. If you can read English, you need to know these things. This is for you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have a resurrected Savior, this is for you. It's not for the other people, it's for you. If you don't have a resurrected Savior, understand this is not for you. That's the way this divides out. And please bear with the brokenness of the vessel of the person that's reading this to you. But this is so important to get. The entirety of human history has been bathed in the promise of the resurrection through the Messiah. And the Old Testament scriptures are telling us this. And we, in our arrogance, in our foolishness, in our, in our idiocy about how smart we are, we will miss it, and we will not see it, and then we will teach others not to see it. The resurrection is in Psalm 16, and this is the part that will blow my, it blows my mind in verses 29 through 31, what Peter does with what he thinks David is saying. Now, here's the question. Is Luke inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the words that he wrote? I believe he is. Is Peter inspired by the Holy Spirit to say the words on the street in Jerusalem that he said? Yes, he's filled with the Spirit speaking prophetically. Do you have a prophetic interpretation of the Old Testament in this passage? You do. Now, here's what people will do. Watch this. They'll say, yeah, Peter in the Spirit can say anything he wants because anything that he says is inspired. Peter is just going to say what he wants to do with it. And this is the interpretation. Um, one of my favorite uh, uh, theologians, Robert Thomas, said that this would be some sort of inspired census linear application. You're just, um, you know, he wouldn't say this one is one. But, but the Old Testament, when it doesn't seem to line up how they're using it, well, the New Testament guy's just using it. And, uh, but he's inspired in the New Testament to say how he's saying it. Well, here's the thing about that type of approach to this. You can't do it in this quote. 
And I tend to not want to do it ever. I'm with Walter Kaiser more and Elliot Johnson and others that will say the author intends what he intends and it doesn't change over the ages. We have one message from God. He has different works that he does through the ages, different phases of revelation, different expectations. You know, you have a higher responsibility than just the law, which no one ever kept but Christ, because you have the Spirit of God living in you and you're abiding in Christ. But anyway, in verses 29 through 31, Peter says David is consciously predicting the resurrected Messiah a thousand years ago. In Psalm 16, when David wrote this, this is what David meant. That's what Peter does here. So you can't do this while the New Testament is inspired on its own. So what Luke writes is, is what God wants us to know in this case, but it's not what David was talking about. You can't do that here. And it, it's devastating to that view. And so what you have to do is basically deny the New Testament or, or Paul or Acts or, or some, you have to invent some way, some clever way to, to dodge. There, brethren, I may confidently say to you, Regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So a literal reading, you will not allow, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. A literal reading says, well, David died. Well, but, they, but wait a second, Peter. David's a poet. He's writing a psalm of praise. You know, it's poetic. It's, and, and Peter's not going to have that. He's going to say it is poetic, and there's a literal reference. There's a literal meaning the author has in his intention. And so now we get to the authorial intention in verse 30. So because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, 2 Samuel 7, the promise of the Davidic covenant, because David knew of this promise, he is reflecting on that truth. So what, what the idea is that after the events described in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David says, I'm going to build God a house, and God says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty, and you're going to have a son to sit on his throne, a throne that I'll establish in a kingdom forever. That David's reflecting on that. Peter says that's what David's talking about when he says your holy one is not going to rot, to undergo decay. So look, y'all, let's circle the, the fun run back around. Let's, let's back around. If you've lost the beat of the discussion, we're going to come back to you right now. Here's what's going on. Peter's preaching on Pentecost, and he's proving to the people in Jerusalem one more time there's a resurrection. He's going to do it several times. He's going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, right? And so he's saying this was something we should have expected from our scriptures, and these people in the street think that they're right for killing the Messiah because they don't believe he's the Messiah. Peter's proving to them that he is the Messiah because he's the resurrected one. And you should have expected the resurrection of David's greater son. By the way, Jesus is born of Mary and uh, legally Joseph's son, his stepson, both of them lined to David. Peter's going to say that David predicted the resurrection of the Messiah when he wrote Psalm 16. So when you read Psalm 16, and I read Psalm 16, we might have missed it. But Peter's saying, here's the right way to read it. And it's within the intention of David, the author, because he's the prophet that knows about the resurrection. He knows about the, the promise of a son to sit on his throne forever. And so that's verse 30. Because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne 
He looked ahead. David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. He quotes again, verse 9 of chapter 16. Peter's doubling down and saying, I'm demonstrating to you that David the prophet, now David's a king, right? Well, he's also a prophet because he's writing scripture. He's inspired by the Spirit to write what he wrote. And so he's prophetically being given this information, and it gives you insight into the prophets. Walter Kaiser's famous, and for some people he's infamous, for being the kind of interpreter that'll say, I'm not going to say that the author of the Old Testament text didn't know what he was talking about. He's inspired to write what he wrote, but he didn't know what he's talking about. Kaiser's going to go to a passage like this and say, no, the prophets knew. They're looking to the future. And 1 Peter 1, or 2 Peter 1 says they wanted to see what these things were about. They were trying to see and trying to understand who these things were about and um, what time or what manner these things, uh, promises of the Messiah were going to take place. And so David's looking forward on the basis of prophetic revelation from God through, through the prophet Nathan, you're going to have a son. He's looking forward to the resurrection of the Messiah. That it, it fits together with everything that has been expected. So we've got a couple important rationales here. You have God's promise to Abraham of the land forever, and then David, uh, Abraham dies. That's a big problem. I'm going to give you this land and give it to your descendants forever. Well, the, Abraham died. How does he get the land forever? Well, he's got to be resurrected. The, the inherent implication of the Abrahamic covenant is the resurrection. It's an, it's an implication. Here is an explicit statement David makes that not, your holy one is not going to undergo decay. It's the promise of the resurrection on the basis of the promise of David's greater son sitting on his throne. And then we'll round out 32 through 36 where Peter says that this resurrected and glorified Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. That's his argument. He is the one we've been looking for. He's the anointed one who has poured out the Holy Spirit today. You are hearing all this language because the Christ, the resurrected, exalted Jesus of Nazareth, has poured out the Holy Spirit as the promise of the Father. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. So we should have expected it from what David wrote. Jesus fulfills this prophecy through the resurrection. And therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father, that's God the Father, the Son has received the promise of God the Holy Spirit. This is a Trinitarian passage in verse 33. He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. This is him answering the whole argument. This is him answering the question, what's happening on the streets in Jerusalem? That what he's explaining to them what the phenomenon is, what the sign means. This is an interesting thing. It's a miraculous occurrence that has a doctrinal teaching to explain it. It's a miraculous occurrence that has a doctrinal teaching. Now, now the sign is validating the message of the resurrected and glorified Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. That promise, that doctrine, the sign is revealing this. And we believe this happened. It did happen, and it's the basis on which we do everything we do. We have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. But not everybody has the gift of languages, and I contend no one today has it because it was a sign that validated the coming of the Spirit, and that has been completed. That, that sign ran its course. I have friends that disagree. They think it still continues. And um, 
in those cases where we're good friends, we believe it's actual languages. And we will disagree on what it was for and why revelatory gifts have ceased. Not all the gifts have ceased, but the revelatory gifts seem to have ceased with the completion of the Scriptures. Nevertheless, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth this, which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That's the Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's appeal to the people depends on the Old Testament predicting intentionally, cognizantly, consciously predicting the resurrection of the Messiah. Peter's argument makes no sense without that expectation. His proof that he spends all that time, Luke spends all that ink to write, and we've copied it thousands of times. So now we have it here because of the copyists. This, this people, this is the word of God. Do you love God? Then you love his word. If you love God but don't love his word, I have bad news for you. You don't love God. And, and if that makes you feel bad, good, stop it. Start loving God and seek to know him through what he said. It's a choice. I love God. I want to know what he says. And the more you pay attention to what he says, the more you're going to fall in love with how he says it. Now watch the, the method here Peter teaches me to have. Peter tells me David is writing prophetically and he's conscious and he's building what he's saying based on prior revelation. He and the Spirit is revealing things. God the Holy Spirit is revealing things through Psalm 16 on the basis of something that he already revealed to David in 2 Samuel 7 with the prophet Nathan. Scripture builds. There's a progress of revelation. It's a little small, little small uh, limita- delimitation in time between when Nathan told him the thing in 2 Samuel 7 and David wrote Psalm 16. But there's a progress of revelation that's happening. And Peter assumes that what David writes is prophetic. He also assumes that David in his prophecy is thinking about prophecy he's already received. Think about all that. that, that it's very intricate, this doctrine of the progress of revelation. But the idea, again, that the prophet doesn't know what he's writing about, so Psalm 16 is somehow mystically about the resurrection, and David doesn't know, that won't work for Peter. That won't work for the New Testament. Which means we are probably reading it wrongly if we're not seeing the resurrection. Or I should say dogmatically we're reading it incorrectly. On this doctrine of the resurrection, I want you all to think about something with me. We're in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to turn back in my Bible uh, one page, two pages, to where I see red letters in, in Acts 1. First page of Acts, chapter 1. In verse 6, well, let, let's go back. In verse 4, Jesus is having his last powwow with the disciples before he leaves. That's not good theological technical language, but it'll work for me. Have his last sit down with them as Luke portrays it. There are many portrayals of this last conversation, many ways of, of, the, of the farewell conversation, and they're all right. And none of them is the comprehensive 
story. I look forward to seeing how this all works together. But Jesus had things to say, and the last things are important always. It's all important, but, but notice in verse 4, gathering the disciples together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. What has the Father promised? The Holy Spirit. So then he explains it, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You'll be unified with me, and you'll share my past, present, future destiny, and my glory, because you'll be in union with me, because I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, just as John the Baptist prophesied. There's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, for I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. This is the baptism of Christ using the medium, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. He unifies you by putting the Holy Spirit on you to himself. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's such a big deal. It's, it's a much bigger deal than I feel something, than I feel an ecstatic, mystical, emotional uh, otherness. It's, such a, it's so much bigger than your sensory perception or even your feelings, your emotions, you're unified with Jesus Christ. And so verse 6, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Why not? This was 2,000 years ago. The prophesied Messiah had come. He had lived a perfect, sinless life and fulfilled the law as the only human being who ever did. And so he had no sin of his own. So he took our sins on himself. It was completed at the cross. And I know that because he said to Telestai, it's finished in the past. And so it's finished forever. So the work of the cross is done. And the resurrection on the third day to glory is settled. He's resurrected. Why not? You know, it would solve all our problems if he had just said, yeah, here we go. But he didn't. He said, I'm leaving. I don't want him to have said that. I want, to, I want him to have said, yeah, let's, let's do it. God could well have said, yeah, the, the cross work is done. The resurrection is settled. Here is the kingdom. That's the sequence, cross, resurrection, kingdom. But he didn't do that. Had he done it, and you had been born, I don't know how that would have been possible given the sequence and things, but let's just, let's just play a thought experiment. Had he set up the kingdom, and you had been born into it, as many people during the millennial reign of Christ will be born, there'll be a massive population explosion. It's a weird time. Resurrected church, ruling with Christ, perfect administration over the, broken king, over the kingdom that is composed of broken humans that survived the tribulation, and they... Believers in the first generation make a bunch of babies and you don't die like in the millennium like you die now because the, the, the curse of nature is gone. And so you have this long lifespan with this massive population explosion for a thousand years on earth. That's the millennial kingdom as described in Revelation 20 and other places. So you're born in that time and brothers and sisters, you are not walking by faith. You're walking by sight. 
We are telling the human, the mortals that are, well, we're human, but we're resurrected humans. We're telling the mortals what it was like before Jesus ruled on earth. We're telling them there was a time before your birth when we had to believe in him who we had never seen. Yeah, the one, the king over in Jerusalem that we're all worshiping because he's God in the flesh. The one who died for our sins. We never saw him, but we lived an entire life. 80 years. You're like, what? 80 years? Yeah. 85, 90 years. And that was it. And we lived an entire life expecting him to be there because he promised, because God made it real to us through his word. We were walking by faith and not by sight. And we had hardship and we had a sinful nature just like you do. We don't have it anymore. Y'all have it still. That's the nature of the conversation between the resurrected saints of the church and the tribulation uh, saints and their kids who live in the millennial kingdom. To them, it's going to be just an impossible thing to imagine because they're going to live in an environment of King Jesus ruling on planet Earth in perfect harmony where nature is not a problem. Where, where, where the problem is the sinful people, that's the only problem. And in the, the millennial kingdom is described. There will be times when, uh, when the rod has to come out because of the sinfulness of the humans. But here's what I'm trying to say. You and I, 2,000 years after Jesus said what he said, he said, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you'll be my witnesses throughout the earth. It wasn't God's plan. Despite the glory of the resurrection of our Savior, it wasn't the plan to bring the kingdom and have him rule directly on planet earth as he will. It was his plan to work in us in the power of the Holy Spirit so that as we grow and get serious about his work and love him, we do what he called us to do, to bear witness for him under pressure. It seems like it would be so much easier if he just said, okay, let's do it. But it wasn't God's plan. God knows what he's doing. I do not. God knows that the hardships that you and I deal with in this life that we have to constantly take to him and throw ourselves on his mercy and say, God, I know you see it. Your son is resurrected. It promises my resurrection. I'm trusting you. I know you see this hardship. That's the deal. That's what we're going through right now. And somehow the scriptures seem to indicate that's all training. It's all preparation It's all the purpose that God has for us in this phase of life, that we would trust him through the hardships that he allows us to endure. It's a magnificent plan. And now let's come back to reality. Had he not waited, as he's waiting in 2 Peter 3 says, had he gone ahead and brought the kingdom, you and I probably wouldn't be here at all. It wouldn't be the body of Christ. And we would not be preparing and being groomed to rule with him in the coming kingdom. So praise God for his timing, which he understands and we do not. Peter teaches the resurrection in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says, Blessed be the Lord, or be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is 1 Peter 1 3, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is through the resurrection that we are born again because it's the proclamation of the good news and the resurrection of Christ that we believe in Christ and that is the the beginning of our new life when he begets us as his children when we believe in Christ. 
In 1 Peter 1.20, for he was foreknown from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. You believe in God the Father because you have believed in Christ. And the only way to come to God the Father is through the Son, as Jesus said in John 14.6. This is God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. See, the rationale uh, of everything we believe hangs on, as we saw last time, the resurrection, so that your faith and your hope are in God. God raised Jesus from the dead. He promised to raise you from the dead. Your hope is in God. In 1 Peter um, uh, 3.21, the difficult passage where he teaches it, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not I contend water baptism, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but appeals to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I know people will say, no, this is your water baptism that, gives you, that saves you, but I don't think that's what he's talking about because he says it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but it's the cleansing of the conscience. The resurrection of Christ who's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. A little foretaste of where we're headed. The Old Testament, this is Roman numeral three in your notes. The Old Testament teaches resurrection in two ways. The first way is by implication. And Jesus taught us to think of it that way. In the the implication of he's the, the God of the living and not the dead, but he's also the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are dead. That means that there has to be a resurrection, that the dead thing has to be a temporary thing. That the, the long-term thing is the resurrected, eternally living with Christ, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the strange thing right now is that for thousands of years, they've been dead. But thousands of years of being dead in a temporary arrangement, looking for the resurrection right before we enter into the millennial kingdom for the Old Testament saints, that blip on the, the radar screen of history, just a few thousand years is nothing compared to eternity in resurrection bliss with your Savior. And so the rationale Jesus gives is that sense of implication. And we're going to talk all about the implications. The other one you can look in your notes. I kind of cheated and showed you that. The other is by direct statement. And these are the passages that you cannot read other than to conclude resurrection. There may be other direct statements that I don't know about. But Isaiah 26, 19 is one, as we've been studying. Psalm 16, 10, and really that section we just looked at. The Dry Bones Valley in Ezekiel 37 is not uh, that spiritually dead people become spiritually alive. It's a resurrection. And the clearer statements, the, the one that's, that, that um, we've already heard quoted is, by Paul is Daniel 12.2, that there's coming the resurrection of, the, of some to life and some to judgment. And then Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I'll see him in my flesh. Job 19, 21 through 29. These are the passages that, to close out this study, we're going to work through um, and, and conclude without any question that the Old Testament is teaching the resurrection. Of course, we started this study with that conclusion in mind. And so I've said, this is my proposition. It's not really a, I don't mean for it to be high, you know, a hypothesis and then we test the hypothesis. I'm saying, this is the thesis and we're going to defend it. The Old Testament teaches the resurrection and the Pharisees, the Pharisees who missed so much about what the Old Testament is, they understood it. So must we. 
as we rejoice in our so great salvation. Father, thank you for the privilege to reflect and focus on the resurrection of our Savior and what that means for us. Thank you for the testimony of the apostles to that effect and the correction that we so desperately need on how to read the scriptures that they supply. Father, the apostles haven't taught us to reinterpret the Old Testament um, outside of the intention of the, of the original authors. In fact, Peter taught us in the pen of Luke to consider what David intended and read it in its context. Father, help us do so, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.